Maury Rose, the two-time winner, takes the lead from Faulkner. That's the way they finish the first lap. It's Schumacher! It's Schumacher! about it, stick it on and send him out. Well, this has blown it for Irvine, blown it for Ferrari. I don't know what's happened. Welcome to another episode of Pit Lane Parlay, a special IMSA edition here with Jeff Westfall from Peregrine Racing. First off, Jeff, thank you for joining. I know we had a, a little difficulty connecting yesterday because uh, both of our households were six so i appreciate you you rescheduling how is uh how's everything going so far uh, everything's going well for us um thanks for having me you know yeah. first of all I, I appreciate your time um you know looking at you know 2021 for carbon with peregrine racing we're definitely starting to ramp up here i mean imsa's schedule generally starts you know january with the daytona 24 but our gtd debut is based around the sprint championship which doesn't start until mid ohio so in about two weeks here, we're going to go full speed ahead um, with races about every two to three weeks, if you average it out over over the next eight events. Um, so we're we're ramping up. I can call it that. I like it. So taking a kind of step back from 2021 and just kind of looking your your racing career kind of started, you know, local karting, and you kind of had a unique path from there to get into racing that that I I you know, we don't always see. So I'll leave it at that and let you uh, explain to the listeners how, how you went from karting to, to IMSA. Yeah, sure. Um, the one thing I noticed in my progression throughout the sport, you know, since I was the, the first of my family to go down that path. So it's not like we had a you know, experience to follow um, is that there's no direct funnel. You almost have to create your own path to get to where you want to end up. You know, if you think about most stick and ball sports, they have, some version of minor leagues leading directly to the majors. Yep. Um, in racing, it's not necessarily that. A lot of it comes down to the partners you have with you, the opportunities, and somewhat the experience. But in some cases, that's not what makes you eligible or uh, wanted by certain programs. Um, you, need, you need to work on on yourself, your craft, your ability. But you know, it's not just behind the wheel. It's it's many facets of it. So. You know, my, my pathway was a little bit unique. Um, I started late and I took some very hard decisions in, in the first couple of years of trying to become you know, a pro driver um, based around that. You know, the, the fact that I was about 19 years old doing a Red Bull driver search in an indoor go-kart with the hopes of being the one that they were going to send to Formula One. You know, I learned very quickly that in motorsports, oftentimes, uh, you know, the fair contest isn't always fair, but what I did take from that um, was a whole heaping ton of experience. And I made it quite far against kids who had been racing go-karts for over a decade with multiple championships to their name in go-karts. So um, I, I recognized that there was a little bit of natural ability. There was also a lot to learn. Um, at that age, I felt like going to karts would be redundant. Uh, I would be a, a perpetual go-karter. So I figured that most kids who made, the progression into formula cars or into cars in general um, did it around that age, if not a couple of years ahead of where I was. So 
I went to a racing school that had a, a fleet of cars that you could race or arrive and drive like a skip barber used to have or a Jim Russell. Sure. Um, I ran a season in that and had some success early on. Again, some of my competitors had a lot of experience. And so I was always on a steep learning curve, but halfway through the season, I started winning a lot of races and I didn't make up for the lost time in the first half, but I finished in the top three of like 40 drivers that were there. Um, and it was one foot in front of the other from that point on looking at what is the next step I hope to achieve and trying to work that plan backwards at least 18 months if I could. Uh, looking back on it now, it would have been better if I had a two or three year vision of where I'd hope to be. But essentially went from uh, in a school formula car to F2000. Um, I drove in F2000s for two seasons. I won the championship in year two. I set the win record of the series, winning 10 of the 12 races. And then from there, I earned an Indy Lights test, as well as a Grand Am GT test. Uh, and that was very crucial for me. You know, at that time in my career, I had only saw Formula Cars as the path to the top of what I really, really wanted to do. Lightweight, aerodynamic, very nimble. That's what I want. And looking at the economic side of it, I've now had three years of kind of working in the sport in the background of making the opportunity even feasible so that you can go run the car, the tires, the fuel, and all the costs that are associated with that. Um, and recognize that the, the, the GT side of it, or the, the sports car side, had a lot of um, value or a lot of opportunity right. that wasn't necessarily there with the formula car. So at that point, I decided to pivot and do solely sports car racing, even though my heart kind of lied with formula cars and aero at that point. I definitely understand that. So you've got, you know, some, some cool credentials on here. Let me see. First American to qualify on pole for the Nürburgring 24 hour podiums at Petit Le Mans podium at 12 hours Sebring at Watkins Glen. So over your, your sports car career so far, if there was out of all of those, maybe that I mentioned or, or others that, that I didn't, is there one that's like top step of the, you know, the mental trophy case of this is, you know, the, the one thing I'll never forget. Yeah. The, you know, I have to go to the, the pole position at Nürburgring. Um, Cause there's been, there's been various wins, right. And you would think sure. that a win would be what you would hold highest shelf on your trophy case, at least mentally. And they're all very, very valuable to me at, you know, at Petit Le Mans last year, we basically were lined up to win Sebring. We got taken out of the race with 20 minutes to go. You know, those are huge endurance events that are, I'm never going to forget those either. But the Nürburgring pole position, um, you know, if, if those that aren't familiar with Nürburgring, obviously it's, it's one of the longest and most challenging racetracks in the world. It, um, it's 15 miles long. Your minute is over, your lap is over eight minutes. There's 170 plus corners. Everything's blind. You're driving through the forest with inclement weather. It'll be raining on one side and dry on the other. Um, it, the challenges there are unlike anywhere else. And on top of that, it happens to be in the motherland of most sports car manufacturers, factories. So all of the German companies, Porsche, Audi, BMW, Mercedes, have a huge interest in winning that event. So on the IMSA side, like in the Daytona 24 hours I've done, which is a world-class venue, you would generally have 24 to 27 really well-sorted cars competing for the, the overall top honors um, in the GT class, if you will, in GTD, I should say. At Nürburgring, we had 43 cars, 35 of them were factory funded. So the depth of the field there, I mean, 
anybody who was anybody in GT racing was there racing. It was an incredible field and um, just a lot of fun, really. I mean, it's the type of place that it's an adventure. Every time you go out, you think you have a plan and there's some curveball you did not expect. I mean, it's just almost almost guaranteed that it's going to happen that way. Over, you know, speaking of Nürburgring, you, know, you have an, an eight minute lap, you know, a couple hundred turns and <laughs> everything you mentioned. How, how do you mentally prepare for a grueling race on, you know, the, the longest single lap track there is? How, how much, how much more difficult is that than say, you know, racing 24 hours at Daytona where it's, you know, a couple miles, the lap is roughly a minute and a half. What you, know, how different is it? Uh, they're quite different. Um, Daytona is lit up like a stadium. So it's almost like you're driving around a Super Bowl, you know, <laughs> the Super Bowl venue. There's lights everywhere. You have one dark corner on the lap, which is the bus stop in the back that as soon as you turn in, you can't, you can't see anything until you get to the apex curve. But after that, you have good visibility. Uh, Nurburgring, you're driving through the forest. And so there are no lights. The only lights you have are your headlights. And when you're doing 150 or 160 turning into a corner that's blind around a bend anyways, there's a lot more commitment from just driving the vehicle that that is required and so if you look at the risks you're taking right most of daytona's risks are based on traffic you know you're not necessarily the fastest car there because all the prototypes have a, a much more downforce less weight more power so they're faster and their closing rate on you varies depending on which category you're dealing with on top of that you have different drivers some of them are more aggressive some are passive some are clueless and so you kind of have to watch yourself. And that's most of the risk you'll have at Daytona. At Nürburgring, the risk is completely isolated to yourself. The GT cars are the fastest things there, but the circuit is ever changing. Um, the first time I've seen snow on a racetrack was a lap around Nürburgring when I was at speed. And there's a, a surface flag and you come around a bend and come over the hill and there's it's snowing. Um, you're on slick tires, obviously, because you only have one pit lane and it's six miles behind you down the road and you're not going to put rain tires on for one mile of moisture. So the, the amount of compromise you need to make or the amount of uh, awareness you need to have or all of the above really to be successful there is it's the different, um, it's why it stands out, you know, it's, it's unlike most other circuits that way. Yeah. Super cool. The only time I will have ever been there is on a video game and I'm pretty terrible at that track, but <laughs> it's a great place to practice because there's a reset button. So, I mean, you can, yeah, you yeah. Can, I, I would recommend learning the track in thirds. That's what I did. I broke it down into like okay minute chunks or like two and a half minute chunks and just really focus on that and kind of forget about everything else. Let the mind really sink into that first third then let the mind sink into the second third and you start putting it all together that way. But it does take a considerable amount more time. Yeah. I mean, I still can't do more than a couple laps without maybe hitting a wall or two, but you know, then again, I'm using a controller and I'm a very low, low tech setup in the, in the, in the house here, but you're, you're driving the Audi R8 this year for the sprint cup. So I'm sure you've, I, I would imagine you've had testing at this point, but, uh, what's what's driving the Audi like compared to some of the other IMSA machines you've driven over the last you know handful of years? You know the the Audi's interesting. Um, I've driven the GT4 car quite a bit because that's what our Peregrine team started with and, and building the relationship with Audi as a brand. Um, and we ended up winning a championship for them in our second year as a team. Um, and, and the little brother, I'll call it that, the GT4 has a lot of similarities to big brother, the GT three, 
Yet the GT3, you can tell, is more purpose-built. A lot more of the equipment on that car is built specifically for endurance racing, specifically for higher abuse, uh, more aero, more grip. So they're not too removed from each other. Um, having said that, they do differ from some of the other vehicles I've driven. Most of my IMSA experience or Grand Am experience has been in uh, a lot of it's in Ferraris. And okay. they're both mid-engine platforms, but the, where the mass is centrally located is different. Um, and that is probably one of the biggest changes in car behavior you can have uh, when you drive one car versus the other as a, as a consumer. And you don't really know why one feels a certain way and the other one doesn't. And a lot of it has to do with where the weight in the car is. Um, and so some of the strengths the Ferrari has, uh, the Audi has alternate strengths. Okay. And so as a, you know, for me, I need to just maximize what the car is good at. And our Audi is really good in traction. So when we leave slow corners and get like get a dig and put power down and get it to hook up, that's definitely one of the strengths of the Audi. Um, it's got a really sharp front end. So you can kind of call the nose where you need it when you need it, which is really helpful, especially when you're driving in traffic or you have to compromise your line or something like that. Uh, I've raced against the Audi quite a lot uh, for years over in Germany. So I've, I've had many, many chances to either follow it or have it follow me and, and recognize some of the strengths that it does have. Awesome. All right. So we're going to go non-racing here. And, and my last, uh, couple questions first off. So every, every driver that comes on, we have a pit lane parlay, Spotify drivers playlist. You can add any song you want, whether it's something you like to listen to before a race or just something you're currently listening to or in, in the mood to listen to. So what song are we adding? Oh boy. That's tough. <laughs> that's, that's going to be really tough. I don't know that I can pin it down to one because I have like different moods are going to drive me a different way. And, and truthfully before a race, like my favorite thing to do is take a nap or just like really I, I go like quiet that. and, and, and stay away from the distraction <laughs> just kind of focus in on what's, what's present. So what's um, a favorite artist maybe just in general? Yeah. There, there's an artist I've been into lately uh, called uh, Sear S I R. It's kind of a, a lower cadence, like, r&b hip-hop soul type of thing he's kind of yeah. a blending genres in a way but uh, a lot of his stuff i've been really liking lately for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. I will just pick the most popular one on Spotify here and add it to the playlist I really like doing this because I discover a bunch of music I would have never listened to if it wasn't for yeah, yeah. drivers yeah, totally. explaining this as I was saying yesterday to a, uh, an Indy Lice driver. All right, so we'll wrap it up with 
two more here. The the Sprint Cup schedule is eight race eight races. So you go from mid Ohio until the last race of the year, which is escaping me now that I changed my screen. But nonetheless, eight races long. How do you? You know, is 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 the Sprint Cup more of a listen? We want to win as many po- as races as possible, or does it reward you for finishing second or third every time out there and, and just maximizing the amount of points you can get? Yeah, for sure. I mean, two different thought thought processes or at least strategies to try and execute on. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you win championships by being consistent and scoring points. And the wreckers or checkers mentality, although it's popular with many drivers and a lot of people, um, it oftentimes is tough to win a championship that way because it takes you know one minor mistake to really have a big fallout in terms of your end end goal. So we're, we're looking at this, you know, more than just a one season deal um, as far as what our goals are with the GT3 car and with Audi and IMSA and so on and so forth. I would say that we're looking at it more of score as many points as we can and maximize the opportunities as we learn along the way. You know, being that it's a first year for us with a familiar platform kind of, but it's still new. Uh, some of the strategies during the event or the race are different because of the length of the race and the pit stops required. So I think there's going to be a healthy learning curve for us as a unit um, to maximize everything we have. Having said that, you know, I think we're starting off at a little bit of an advantage because we understand what the car wants out of the gate Um, that our testing did confirm that, that it behaves as we expected it to behave based on what we knew previously. So um, I I would say it's big picture minded. Um, Obviously we want to do as well as we can. And if there's a race win, I'm certainly not going to like take it easy and not take the race win. Uh, we're going for it. But at the end of the day, uh, we need to score points and, and have a good showing in the overall as well. I like it. All right. We'll wrap it up with one last question here and we'll, we'll keep it on the 2021 schedule. You start at mid Ohio, you go to some really cool tracks this year. Uh, we'll make this a two-parter. What one are you most excited for and what one, you know, looking at the schedule, are you most cons- concerned with, you know, which one are you looking at? Like, Oh boy, this is going to be a real tough one. Yeah. Um, I'm most excited. That's the easy one is Long Beach. I mean, street good, venue good in Southern California. Like, I mean, <laughs> I think that goes without saying if I didn't say that, I'm sure I'd, I'd probably get slapped for not saying that. Uh, but that's for me, that's definitely the highlight of the calendar. Although there are quite a few ones that I really, really enjoy. Um, if there was a race that I didn't or was less keen on, I don't know that I'm unhappy that we're going. Um, I would say it's Lime Rock. Um, Okay. You know, for me, yeah. I always race well in the Northeast. I've always seemed to finish on the podium quite a lot up there in, in Grand Am or IMSA. Um, but the track itself for me doesn't do a whole lot. You know, it's like eight right-handers, one left-hander. It's less than a minute lap time. The driving of the circuit is boring. The racing is great because you're always around somebody. Right. So, you know, I guess that's the redeeming quality. But, you know, it's a, probably the furthest place from California to travel. <laughs> it's not a lot of great things to see when you're out there. It's uh, it's just, it just to me, it's it's less of a highlight. I will I will say, as a somebody who lives in the Northeast, but not not all that close to Lime Rock, there really isn't too much up that way. Even like outside of like Watkins Glen, there's there's not really too much to do. So, I I don't blame you for that one at all. I I definitely understand. Yeah. But we'll, I like the Glen way more than Lime Rock. Yeah, I mean, the circuit's yeah. more interesting. The town's more interesting. There's more history there. Like you can actually stay in a hotel, not an Airbnb <laughs> with like grandma's dolls on the shelf. And so, 
Yeah, I've stayed at some weird Airbnbs for race travel before, and I kind of <laughs> miss like coming home and being like telling my wife like I, you should have seen the Airbnb I stayed in this weekend. It was really weird, and I've had my fair. My share. teammate Tyler and I called it Airbnb roulette. And, you yeah, because you never yeah. know what you're going to get, right? Everyone puts their best foot forward and shows the picture that makes it look awesome. And we've had a few with Peregrine Racing in the last couple of years where uh, we had one that, like, the electrical sockets weren't covered and the wire was exposed without like a cap on oh. it. Uh, there was like a dirty rag hanging on the chandelier, which was crooked. Like they attempted to wipe it and then just forgot and left it there. Uh, the roof was caving in in one of the rooms. Like there were bugs everywhere. <laughs> It was brutal. It was definitely not one of the nicest places I, we've seen. I had one in Road America where the couple was staying on the first floor, which is fine. And the wife would make me coffee and breakfast every morning. And, you know, I was there for three days. The coffee, <laughs> coffee was awful. Every, every morning it was awful. And then yeah. one night I got back from the track and I had sat down on the couch to take my shoes off before I walked upstairs and they were asking me, how long I've been trialing for racing, et cetera. And I was talking about my wife and that weekend she was somewhere with some girlfriends and she was calling me and I said, Oh, speak of the devil. She's calling me right now. I didn't know they were very religious and they didn't like that. I used the word devil in that context <laughs> and they made it known. Like they told me like that is not acceptable. And I didn't talk. I avoided them at all costs for the remaining 36 hours because I was just mortified of like saying anything. So I like snuck. You didn't out take the coffee and the breakfast the next day. Oh, well, I still took it. I still, <laughs> I'll take any coffee. It doesn't matter how good or how bad it is. I'll, I'll still take it. But that was one that like I'll, I will never forget that how uncomfortable that like 30 seconds was before I was like, well, I think I need to go to bed now. <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to sleep with one eye open. Yeah. Yeah. Lock the door, put my bag in front of it, put my computer in front of that. So I have built myself a little barrier so I don't accidentally get cut open in the middle of the night. That's hilarious. Well, man, I, I definitely appreciate the time this afternoon and, and best of luck this year. Hopefully I'll be able to get out to one of the tracks in, in the near future here and, and say hello, but Good luck this year. Hopefully we see you on the, on the podium a handful, at least a handful of times and look forward to talking again soon. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. And yeah. come out to the Glen if you can. I think that uh, the sprint race at the Glen should be a good one. So yeah, you can make that one in the Northeast. That'd be good for you. Awesome. I like it. All right, bud. Thanks. All right, Thanks man. a bunch. Thanks a lot. I'll talk to you later. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.